0: Welcome, everybody, to the Shop Notes podcast. I'm your host, Phil Huber. Today, I'm joined by Logan Whitmer and a special guest, furniture maker, author, and teacher, Matt Kenny, to talk about his new book and his work. I want to just say that today's episode is brought to you by Garrett Wade, offering unique tools of exceptional quality and solid value since 1975. So this is a first for us, Logan, that we get to have a special guest star beyond like well, family
1: or, or i mean i would consider john a special
0: guest right right yeah he's definitely special <laughs> yeah so so today we're joined with uh joined by matt Kenny and matt you i've I, this is gonna sound super creepy and like uh you know like restraining orderish but i've followed your career at fine home Build or fine woodworking and on the podcast there and uh, as you've launched into your own work there. So it's kind of fun to be able to have you on the podcast here and talk to you in person. Yeah,
2: being... that's creepy, but it's not the creepiest thing I've ever heard. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But I appreciate you guys having me on the podcast, and uh, it's, it's nice to be here.
0: Yeah. So by way of introduction for our audience, uh, maybe just give an introduction to yourself and maybe your work. Uh,
2: Sure. Um, well, I'm a furniture maker. I live in a uh, beautiful part of Connecticut uh, and I moved to Connecticut in 2008 to, uh, uh, to work at Fine Woodworking Magazine and I worked there for 10 and a half years and it's been two years, a little over two years now since I left the magazine and in that time I have uh, been teaching all over the US and overseas, and I have written my second book, which is about uh, Kumiko, which is a uh, a Japanese art form that's really taken off in the United States over the past, I don't know, maybe four years or so. Um, And uh, I've also, uh, have started work on my third book as well. And, um, uh, I don't know. And I, and I'm, you know, I make and sell furniture and, uh, every day I, most days I share what's going on in my shop, uh, through my Instagram account. And, um, you know, it's a pretty happy life. Uh, uh, being a furniture maker is not a great way to make a living, but it's a great way to make a life. And, uh, you know, Every day I wake up and I'm happy.
0: (laughs) Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Because I think you probably uh, live the dream of quite a few hobbyist woodworkers of being able to support yourself by woodworking as clouded and rose-tinted as that dream may sometimes be.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Um, It is... I am very fortunate to get to do what i love every day and i i am one of those people who probably makes everyone else cringe that says it never feels like work to me um (laughs) (laughs) you know the you know the last two years have been truly wonderful and um the you know to get to make what i love to make and want to make and also to teach which i've always been very passionate about teaching i used to be a college professor and uh i love teaching so to get to travel through all over the u.s and to places like australia and germany to teach is uh is absolutely amazing especially because someone else is paying for it and
1: um
2: you know so it's it is it is a great And It is a a really wonderful life, and I'm very fortunate that I get to do it. And also, it's uh, actually really humbling uh, that people would consider my work and my uh, teaching of worth are inspirational. So um, it's all around a really great life, and I highly recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Five stars you know
0: <laughs> so compare your college teaching to woodworking teaching are there similarities that you found or stark differences
2: well one in a woodworking class m- more often than not everyone wants to be there <laughs> you know <laughs> you know everyone they sign up for a woodworking class because they want to be there when I was a college professor, I taught. Uh, I was uh, taught philosophy, and I taught a lot of things like requirements, like intro to deductive logic. And there's 60 students there, and maybe one of them really wants to be there. Uh, <laughs> so there's that difference. Um, the, I think the biggest difference b- between then and now for me is, you know, back then if I wrote something. Uh, Really, I wrote a dissertation, and maybe five people or six people have read it. And sure. now when I uh, share something, a lot, a lot more people see it, and they appreciate it, and you know, they tell me that it makes a difference for them. And I think that's the biggest difference that, although I found teaching philosophy to be rewarding, and it certainly affected students' lives positively. The what I do now has a far, 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 it reaches far more people, and has a positive effect on far more people, and that is, you know, immensely rewarding, and um, it keeps me working hard to ensure that what I am doing is beneficial not only to me but also to other folks in the craft and also to the craft as a whole that, you know, I want to make sure that when I get too old to do this, that if I'm contributing, I'm contributing something that makes the craft stronger and to flourish and make it, uh, approachable or available to far more people than it was, uh, when I started. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So how did you move from, um, you know, what was the uh, journey of a woodworker to go from what you were doing and then you start into Kumiko where you've decided to take a deep dive in that? You know, because I know a lot of people will add a Kumiko panel to this, that, or the other thing, but it's in the midst of other woodworking.
2: Right. Well, um, so back around 2015 or it might have been well in 2015 i started this thing where i decided to make 52 boxes during the course of a year and got started in april of 2015 and i guess it was sometime during that period that my coworker and friend at fine woodworking mike pekovich he started to dabble in kumiko and that was because uh there was, there's a furniture maker in Massachusetts named John Reed Fox, who is, his work is mind-blowing. It's so amazing. And John uses Kumiko in some of his work. And so there was a, one of his pieces was on the back cover. And there was a short article about how to, John makes the, a pattern called Asanoha, And so Mike started to mess around with it. And we were just riding back from lunch one day and we were talking about it. And I said, "Well, oh, it'd be really cool to incorporate that into some of the boxes that I'm making. And I started to think about how to do it. And so initially, I was just using the framework and in, in putting it in boxes. I put it in two different tea cabinets during that time. Uh, but then I started to do it more. And uh, I mean, I hate I don't know. Precisely what caused Kumiko to take off so much, but I do know that it corresponded with Mike and I doing it and showing it on our Instagram feeds. Right. So people wanted to start taking it. And so I just, I kind of got more into the patterns because the patterns, uh, it's one of the things that I'm fascinated with in the world generally, but also in the things that I make. I'm interested in using like the parts of a box or the parts of a piece of furniture to create patterns. And it's something that I think the Shakers did really well. And it's one of the ways that Shaker work has influenced my own work. Uh, so I just got deeper and deeper into the patterns and and making them. And uh, it, so it's more, it's like, a, I think Kumiko, lines up really well with what I find interesting in the world and in furniture making. And I saw it as a way to embellish my work, but also just as something that was in and of itself attractive and beautiful. So I started to make them as like decorative wall panels. Sure. And um, realized that people really like them. So, and that people would buy them. So, <laughs> from, you know, from there you have another incentive to, to do it. Um, so, and then, you know, uh, uh, another former fine woodworking editor who owns a publishing company now asked me if I would do a book about it. And I, and I resisted for quite a while because I didn't think that I was good enough. And uh, we eventually settled on a format that I thought was within... The realm of my capabilities and um, so that's how the book came about but you know really it's just uh, an interest in pattern and um, you know it's also a nice way to spend an early morning in the shop you know sure. quietly bench and that's you know often when I go into my sh- in the mornings when I get up I like to start my morning quietly and sort of build up to machinery Uh, you know, Kumiko is a way to do that, or you know, just using you know, making sure that when I finish the day before, there's something that I can do at a shooting board or something like that the next morning. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the transit, so the transition was partly out of my own fascination, but also because I realized there was a demand for it, that people really, really were interested in it, and so you know. when you're self-employed, you have to be able to see opportunities and take them. Uh, so, right. you know, it was both things,
0: really. Well, Logan, you, once your wife got hold of the book, Matt's book, now you're on the hook for a critical for yeah. pattern, right? Yeah,
1: it's funny because my wife doesn't, my wife asks for stuff. She asks for me to build stuff. And I kind of put all that off because it's like, yeah, I could build another dining room table or, you know what I mean? It's like, it's another table. It's another whatever. But when she's like, hey, I want you to make a couple of these for the house. I'm like, okay. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is something I'm excited to, to try my hand at, right? Uh, and it's something that she was interested in. So it's was like, hey, I can actually get some shop time doing something I'm interested in uh, and try something new to me. Uh, so yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, I man, I think it's funny that you you talk about the patterns, and flipping through your book here, it's amazing how how much the pattern that you make with the Kumiko pieces and and the the, the pattern you're working on changes the attitude of what the overall aesthetics of the piece looks like. You know what I mean? Like the different patterns that that you produce in these books it's amazing the the variety of different feels you can get from them if that makes sense
2: yeah uh, yeah 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 for sure i mean and i think that's because one you're creating different shapes but also there's the interplay of positive and negative space yeah and how much say of a background fabric that shows or if it's in a window how much light is let through and uh yeah i mean it's like if something if you use the you know the fundamental pattern which gets used the most is the asanoha or hemp leaf and if you make that with thicker stock and it's really crowded and tight that's going to give you a different visual sense or uh, then if you use pieces that are really thin and it's more open up you know so you can depending on how you uh in a sense you crowded you make an individual pattern or how many instances of the pattern you fit into a panel you can make something more that's more open and relaxed and maybe has more harmony Mm -hmm. or something that has maybe a little more tension in it and I, i yeah i think you're right that you can sort of feel all of that when you look at the panel as a whole
0: yeah so as you're writing a book like this and this probably plays back into as a magazine editor on the one hand, we have a tension in writing where we want to instill confidence in our readers that it's possible to do this. And it's also possible to do it in such a way that you don't want to immediately burn it. <laughs> but, yeah. but there are also, uh, not obstacles, but things that can get in the way of a woodworker in learning a new skill that they need to be mindful of too. You know. It's really easy to say this is the no-fail finish or three secrets to never have to sand again and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, whether it's carving or making Kumiko, there are some challenges to it. So what would you say as you've taught this now that you see woodworkers um, either skip a step or really need to be mindful of as they're working through?
2: Sure. Yeah. First, let me say as a former editor and not to offend anybody, but I absolutely hate any headline that says secrets to this or, you know, seven tips. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know when I was you working, know, I hated those headlines. Uh, but anyways, um, so uh, Kumiko in and of itself, like the technical side of it, like here's how you make a frame, here's all that stuff is technically not challenging you know, and I think in in the book, the techniques that I show on how to make a frame and also the techniques I explain on how to fit parts, it's all, I I don't think that's too challenging. I, I think that what the challenge is for Kumiko, one, and I think this is probably true of all woodworking, it's something that no matter what I teach, it's always something that has to be addressed, sharpness, right? So, in order to really make per- really good-fitting Kumiko pieces, you need to have a, a chisel that is genuinely sharp. You know, And that is something that uh, I found many woodworkers don't really understand what genuinely sharp is. So I think that's one of the challenges. But I think more importantly, uh, after that, is that in order to do Kumiko really well, you have to have patience. Because at times you're gonna be making very, very small adjustments to a stop on a jig so that you can take just a hair or less than a hair off of that little pattern piece and fit it in. And you also have have to have the patience to know that even though this fits in the frame, it's bowing the frame out of square. So I have to take it out and keep working on the fit until it's just right. And I think that that level of patience is um, challenging for almost everybody um, because yeah. it is really fine work. And uh, you also have to have, you, I mean, this is true with all woodworking. You have to be really, clear of mind and focused on what you're doing <laughs> So you know you can't uh you can't be thinking about you know work uh or problems at home or anything like that you've got to be really focused so that you don't make mistakes and so you don't hurt yourself um so i think that for with kumiko that's the big challenge is sharpness uh patience and focus and um, wanting to rush through things always leads to problems, you know. And I, those things, I think, are generally true of woodworking, but especially true with Kumiko. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, does re- it, it requires a certain level of precision and exactness, and that requires dexterity. And those are things that you can acquire if you don't naturally have, but that requires patience. And, you know, (laughs) know, it's, it's, um, but I think that's the, I think that's the biggest challenge of Kumiko until you get into some more complicated and technically challenging patterns, none of which are really in the book. The book is all sort of like an introduction to Kumiko with patterns that are, you know, fairly uh, approachable.
0: Sure. I guess that's what I liked about it, too, is that you weren't, uh, you had alluded to this earlier, you knew, worked out what you wanted in the book and and even admitted straight up in the beginning that this isn't, uh, you know, the history of Kumiko patterns based on Soji screens dug out of wells in ancient Japan or something like that. You know, it's more of your interaction with the craft of Kumiko. And how you've begun to apply it. So I thought that was uh, a unique aspect of the book.
2: Oh yeah, thanks. That was actually (laughs) they kept they wanted me to do like a history of Kumiko, and I was like, I don't know the history of Kumiko really, (laughs) and I, I don't really want to do the research. And I mean that's makes it like a cop out. But I also, for me, woodworking generally is. What's so interesting about it is the the story of yourself that you get to develop as a person, and you know the more you get into woodworking and furniture making, and the more it becomes part of your life, uh, the more it becomes a part of your story. And that's just not you personally in the shop, but also the things that you make and take into your home and how your family interacts with them. And so I think with Kumiko. Uh, I, what I, yeah, I wanted to tell her really not the history, which could be boring, but maybe to make it more approachable to other people is to say, well, hey, look, this is how I got, this is sort of my history of it. And here's how I got started with it. And you can see that when I started, it was just framework, you know, I wasn't doing patterns. And um, so it's something that you can, you know, it's a journey know it's, it's, it's always an evolution, so don't worry about where you're starting. you know just look to where you're going
0: and how to get right. there. yeah well, and I think that's an obstacle that a lot of woodworkers you know the classes that I've taught too is they see your work or the work that they aspire to, and then they look at their own results probably way too magnified than they need to and feel like it's impossible or unapproachable and realize that the early projects are just as valuable and beautiful as yeah. their later work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything you make is a stepping stone or a milepost in your development. And everything you make is an opportunity to learn. And, and honestly, you learn the most when you make mistakes. You know, if you stop and think about why you made the mistake and what you can take away, how you can make sure you don't do that mistake again, you know, you can learn a lot from your mistakes and in it's a necessary part of developing in any craft is to make things, have them not turn out the way you want to, and then make something else. Whether it's that same thing again, or it's something different, you have to keep, Making something, completing it, and then moving on to the next thing. And yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm asked a lot. Of, well, not a lot, but I get asked enough about, you know, by especially by young people. How do I get? I'm just starting out. How do I get to where you are? And I say, be patient. And when you're 48, you'll be where I am. You know, <laughs> it's like it takes time. You know that there is no shortcut. It reminds me of when I so I used when high school and college I was a distance runner, and after college too. And there's this really famous distance running book. It's it's a story about a guy that's training to run the mile in the Olympics. And they always talk about the the trial of miles and the miles of trials. And it's the only way that you can become a good distance runner is to run. The (laughs) only way that you can become a good furniture maker is to make furniture and make it and make it and make it and make it. So yeah, there it, it's because uh, a lot of people do look at the work of accomplished furniture makers and think they can never get there. But the truth is you, you absolutely can. You just need to make furniture.
0: You know, right. so. Yeah. That doesn't make a fun cover blurb, though.
2: No, it doesn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. keep making it until you make it. <laughs> Yeah,
2: but that was like when i did the the thing with the boxes that was the whole idea was that i'd gotten to a point with designing that i felt i was kind of stagnant and i would look at the work of like say garrett hack and realized how mature and defined it was and i would think well, how did he get there and i said well garrett's made and designed a lot of furniture so i i thought you know what can i do that would allow me to design and make, design and make, and do a lot of repetitions really fast. Now, I happen to already love making boxes. So sure. I was like, I could probably make a box a week. Let me try that. And, um, you know, it was, it was the idea was to do, to get a lot of practice doing it, you know? And you're right, it's not, it's not a great selling point. but <laughs> but, it, but I think if you hear, An accomplished furniture maker say that to you as a novice, as a beginner. I find that comforting. Sure. Because you're not being told, yeah, you'll never be like me because I have special powers. You know, (laughs) I mean, the only special powers I have is a stupid diligence or, you you know, I'm stupid enough to keep going out in the shop. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm patient enough to keep going out in the shop, you know? it's not woodworking skills. It's like, you know, it's it's just being patient and being determined and loving something enough to go out and do it every day. And that's that's all you need. Right. Yeah.
0: And being able to accept where you are. Um like with your box project, I thought, especially. Um You know, you were making boxes and you used them as a stepping stone, but you accepted where they are and was able to move to the next iteration or even if it ended up being a totally different box, the next one of seeing it as a stepping stone. And even though you moved past it, it was still a valuable it held a valuable place.
2: Oh, for sure. Um, You have to. And I think that's a hard thing. Uh, that when you are just starting out and you haven't made much stuff, it's hard to see how you can just let something go. Um, and because a lot of people, I'm, all, you know, I've asked, been asked quite a bit, how as a, someone who makes and sells things, how do you just let go of something and give it to somebody else, even if it's in exchange for money? And I think you have to, right? You have to look at what you're doing right now and the grander scheme of what you want to become and uh you know these are larger things that apply to life as well that you have to see that um that this what i'm making right here this box is not the final destination this is just part of the journey and i need to want. i i strongly believe you have to complete everything you start you can't leave things by the wayside. You have to complete them. And then you have to let go and you have to move on and you have to take, you take something from it. Like here's what I learned doing that, whether it's a technique or it's how to improve making a table saw sled, or it's even just a little design detail that you can then take on to the next project. But you have to see and understand that you as a furniture maker or a woodworker or, or as a person, you're always evolving. Sure. And so you can't hold on to the stage where you are now because you'll never get to the next stage, you know, which more often than not is something more beautiful and and more profound than what you've already done. So, yeah, letting go, it's a hard thing to learn how to do, but you have to learn how to do it. And I think the only way you learn how to do it is by, finding yourself in situations in life and in the shop where you have no option but to let go, you know? And a lot of times someone will say, well, what should I do with this? Cause I kind of messed it up. And if I look at it and I don't see an easy way, an easy solution, I say, you know what you do? You put it in the stove, you put it in the stove and you let go and you start over and that's okay. It's not a big deal. Everyone makes mistakes. I screw things up all the time you know, but But I also also get back up and keep going,
0: yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna take a little break here and do a message from our sponsor, then we'll get back to Matt. For 45 years, Garrett Wade has been driven by the belief that the tools you use in your shop or garden should be as enjoyable as the finished work itself. Their team travels the world to ensure each tool selected has exceptional quality and solid value for their customers. Whether it's from a regional maker of Japanese pull saws or leather crafters right here in the US, their tools are timeless and will last for years. For their 45th anniversary, they're celebrating the makers who have been part of the journey. Garrett Wade is giving away a $500 gift card to one lucky winner that can be used for any of the high quality tools they carry for the shop, home, garage, and garden. Two additional winners will receive up to $250 in additional Garrett Wade prizes. You can enter to win the grand prize at GarrettWade.com sweepstakes. No purchase required, and good luck. Now, one other question that I had for you, Matt, was uh, as a furniture maker, you know, a lot of the work, and maybe I'm just applying it from myself and translating it to you, but as a furniture maker, you end up building kind of one-off pieces because you need something for the house or uh, you're giving it as a special gift. And now in your new role, you end up moving, still doing one-off stuff, but maybe more, more from a production mindset, because I know that you've done some uh, Kumiko blocks or the patterns, you know, where you'll do a batch order and things like that. Is there what, what are the kind of things that you need to change in your head when you go from, I'm just making one of these, to I need to get 12 of these done?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the you know, one of the big things that will change is you put the hand tools down, uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> which I love hand tools, but you have to be because you have to be efficient, right? You have to be profitable. And so if you're going to do something efficiently and also with the least wear and tear on your body, which I know if you're, 25 you're not thinking about that but like when i make the kumiko when i'm ripping out 4000 strips of kumiko that type of repetitive motion is really damaging to a body and so i think about how can i do this efficiently uh quickly and with as little wear and tear on my body as i can and the the Kumiko stuff is, I mean, that's a little different because I then I am making really large batches, like maybe three hundred Kumiko guide blocks at a time. Right, and that that type of production is significantly different than if I'm making five to fifteen boxes that are all the same. It's slightly different, but what you what you have to do it forces you. to to analyze the techniques and processes that you're using and to refine them to save time and to save effort and to save materials. And yeah. yeah, you also have to keep refining them. So I've been through like four or five different developments in how I rip strips out to make Kumiko parts. And I finally got into something that uh, is really not dif- not difficult on my body, and also produces much better results than the other ways I've done it. Um, so, it, but it, it, yeah, it's a matter of thinking about efficiency, speed, materials, and wear and tear on your body, and then also, of course, accuracy because if you're producing something in, ma- in mass to sell to people, the it has to be high quality because when if it goes out the door, not high quality, you've just wasted, or you've just cost yourself way more time and way more money to fix the problem than if you had solved it in the first place. And issues still arise, you know, right. and, and I still have to go back and someone will say, Hey, you know, I got a couple of frame strips that were tapered and they're too thin. You know, so I when I'm making stuff now, I think ahead and go, OK, well, I know I only need 20 orders of this frame, but let me make 30. And that way I'll have extras on hand in case problems arise and things like that. So but if if you're making like I've done also things sort of like group buys to my for my Instagram followers where it's like. If 20 of you buy this box, then I'm able to sell it at this price instead of the higher price if it was just for one. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. When I do that, again, it's like, okay, if I were making this as one off, this is how I would do it. But if I'm going to make it as 20, then it makes sense to make a pattern that I can pop the front of the box in and route that little finger relief and do it in <laughs> five minutes as opposed to a half hour. Um, and you and you think of other ways, you know, uh, one of the things like, so when I make boxes like that, I tend to make them painted boxes. And that's because now all of a sudden I can let myself not do a four-corner match around the mm. box. And that speeds up work dramatically.
0: But oh, in sure. order
2: to do a painted box, you have to design something that'll be attracted if, if, it, if it's painted so the really the whole process of developing something that can be mass-produced starts with designing it and so when you're designing it you think about what type of joinery can I do that's quick but accurate and strong okay what kind how should I secure the lid in or how should I put the bottom in you know do I do a rabbit and glue it into the rabbit or do I do a groove and have a floating bottom that's solid wood you know so you you rethink the design to make so that it enables you to have processes that are fast and efficient and accurate and also produce a product so to speak that is attractive i am actually i'm really i love it that challenge especially yeah. the part of making it uh, making it beautiful i love that part i love cuz nothing i ever make is complicated i love simplicity in Design but also simplicity and construction so um, I, I love that part of the challenge
0: yeah I, I'm thinking of uh, kind of a different branch of the woodworking tree, but Jared Stonedahl and his stuff on craft and craft production that he's done some writing on that I think is kind of interesting too plays a lot with what you were saying where you know if you were to put out all of the boxes that you've done there's definitely a family resemblance and maybe from the back it they look identical but the first one and the 200th one are vastly different when side by side you know that there's this process of evolution in in the process and in probably the aesthetics and the look just as you've grown as a woodworker and a furniture maker between those two boxes
2: yeah, absolutely. There is. Uh, if you look at the 52 boxes I made, there's definitely things that tie them all together. But if you look at the first one versus the 51st and 52nd one, you can see there's a lot of growth there. And um, it's. I've actually been thinking a lot about this particular topic over the last several years. And I don't know how. I don't. I will say there is a book in 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 my head that is about. <laughs> and about how you design furniture for a house that, so that, you know, honestly, so I, I don't want a house that's full of arts and crafts furniture. I know some people do, but and that's fine. It's beautiful stuff. I don't want even a single piece of it in my house, to be honest, <laughs> but in my personal taste. Uh, but it's like, I want to have a house full of furniture that I've made that is unified, but also diverse. And so how do you do that? You know, how do you develop yourself as a designer? How do you develop uh, the things that you're interested in when it comes to design to have a, a, a diverse set of furniture in your house that is yet still unified? I, I think it was the, the Green brothers, but it might've been Frank Lloyd Wright. It might've been all of them. Who's, you know, they would design furniture for their homes and they were totally against the idea that the owner would sell the house and take the furniture with them. They're like, right. no, 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 no. This furniture only makes sense in this house. And I'm, I'm interested in that idea. And it's part of, I've lived in my current home for two years. And I, when I moved in, I really didn't have any furniture, much to my kid's chagrin. And, uh, and, <laughs> And it's like, well, I didn't want to have furniture because I'm going to make it. I'm forcing myself to make furniture for my house. And I'm and I'm learning about that process of making things that feel at home in your house.
0: Right.
1: Yeah,
2: I don't know. I probably went off on a tangent there, but
0: no, no, that's it's totally legit, because I think that's um, I think that's something that's difficult for. Some woodworkers to wrap their heads around is being able to um, make something that's unique to them while still allowing like a range of expression in that making, you know. That it doesn't, you can be influenced by shaker stuff, but it doesn't mean that all of your stuff has to look like Christian Bexford made it, you know, right? That right,
2: unless you ask Chris that and then he'll say, Yes, it does, <laughs>
0: right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Chris. Is- um, but no, I think you're right. Like finding, cause that's another question that I'm asked, you know, it's like, well, how did you find your aesthetic voice? And although it makes me a little uncomfortable to say things like this, I do think that I, if I, like if I make a box or a wall cabinet or something, I do think that people can identify it as something that I designed and made. And, um, I think and so I've thought about this a lot, about how is it that I came to that. And I think that looking back, I can see that what I'm fascinated with, what I focus on when designing furniture, are like the same things that I'm fascinated by in the world. So like the interplay of light with, uh, with form to create shadow and dimensionality and patterns and colors. And, sure. Um, It's So what I tell people now is, like, all of us are unique individuals, right? There's no carbon copies out there. And the way that I see the world and the way that I think about the world and sort of the way I interpret it visually and aesthetically and emotionally is different from how you do it. And so if you want to develop yourself as uh, your own aesthetic voice, You need to stop and think about, like if you find yourself staring at something in the world because you like it, stop and think, why. what is it about this thing that fascinates me? And if you do that enough, I think you'll find that there are things that you're always drawn to. And then you can take those things and start to figure out ways to put them into your work. You know? And once you know you're in tune with what is unique about the way you see the world, you'll be able to begin to put that back out, you know, to express it in whatever media you choose, you know, furniture making being one. So, yeah, that's something that I I do think is a challenge. And it's again, something you, you you only get to by practicing, by doing it over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. So let's do a, a look back using kind of a running analogy then is can you remember maybe a couple of mileposts in your growth as a designer that these were significant changes in how you either approached woodworking or how your design aesthetic has changed and then peering up ahead of the road do you see something coming along
2: okay well i probably the some of the earliest things that happened for me that really had an impact on me as a designer this is I'm not I mean I'm being serious when I was a kid you know my dad was a contractor and so we grew up around tools and stuff and my brother and I made a tree fort and we made it you know like oh the door needs to be here and it should have this kind of ladder and then when we were teenagers we would make skate ramps and Hmm. learning to make skate ramps you start to learn to problem solve and you start to learn about the relationship between the way things look and the way things perform. right, and some things it's really important how well they perform as opposed to what they look like. So, um, but as uh, you know, I really started to develop as a designer after I started at fine woodworking and there was I was always fascinated with the with bento boxes, which are, you know, it's a way that food is served in Japan and in Japanese restaurants. And because um, I like all the little compartments and uh, I decided to make a box like that. And I made a box with two compartments and two lids. And um, I liked it, but I thought it was a little too squat. So I redesigned it and made it wider, and shorter, and longer. And it was like, boom, that's what I was going for. And uh, and it also started to define my aesthetic in the sense that the lid was set, the two lids were set down into a rabbit, and they were a little bit proud of the sides. So, and I wanted to do that to create shadow lines. And I also had the bottom come out beneath the sides so that the box would sit up off the surface, and that would create a shadow line around the bottom, and I put fabric in that box, and that was like the, my first foray into using fabric, so that was like a big turning point, point. Uh, and then I just, I really wanted to make a shaker oval box, but I didn't want to make a shaker oval box because I'm by nature a contrarian. <laughs> And everybody makes oval boxes. I, I'd seen round boxes, but I did. I thought the techniques that the Shakers used are awesome, but they're also kind of an you know involve steam bending and all this stuff. I was like, what if I turned a box? And I I live very close to Hancock Shaker Village, and they have a round barn there. And I was like, I'm gonna make a box that kind of looks like the round barn, and I'm gonna use milk paint on it. So I milk paint. Used milk paint on the body, and then all of a sudden I was using milk paint with solid wood, and that was like a really pivotal thing for me. I do I regularly acknowledge that one of the things that makes my work identifiable is that I use milk paint in ways that you should do things that other people haven't traditionally done, right? right. So I'm not afraid just to paint a box body, and um, and uh, I do get eyebrows raised by that. <laughs> Yeah, so, but, um, you know, I, when I was learning to make furniture, like back in the early 2000s, the idea that you would paint wood was, you know, apoc- you know, it was heretical. And right. I do, part of me takes joy in painting things for that exact reason, you know, <laughs> sort of like, you know, giving the finger to the old guys. But um, uh, so that was really pivotal when I first started to use milk paint and not be afraid to use milk paint. Um, You know, the introduction of Kumiko into my work was really important, Um, and there are smaller things, like the first time, like I made like a jewelry box with three levels, and instead of having it all be in one case, I broke the three levels into individual boxes and put painted spacers between the boxes, and this idea of like taking the structure of a piece of casework and blowing it up and making it individual pieces and bringing it back together. Uh, it's right. something that I'm still fascinated by. Uh, going, going forward, yeah, I mean, right now I'm working on a credenza for my office, which uh, is, a, I think, a step forward. But the thing after that is a stereo console for my living room, uh, which is going to introduce... Um, I'm going to start using uh, inlay for that. But of course, it's not going to be traditional inlay. Um, <laughs> so I also in, like in my fun time I do illustrations. So I'm usually of these robots, but I've sure. sort of uh, developed like uh, I also do illustrations of robot flowers. So um, I'm going to I I know it sounds crazy, but I think it's going to look awesome. <laughs> so I'm going to start doing things like that. Um and uh but continuing to develop my like taking everything I learned making the boxes and developing that, evolving that into things that I can use when I make full scale furniture. Sure. Yeah.
0: So I think that's nice. Okay. Logan, you got anything?
1: No, I'm just sitting just... here soaking this all in. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome.
2: Yeah, did you wear your hip waders?
1: <laughs> I, I did not. They're in the garage. You can grab them if you want. Duck season's just starting,
0: so yeah. One final question that I want to ask you is uh, this: is something that we've been talking about here at Woodsmith about is projects that we feature, and um, Logan and I are both dads, and I know that you have kids, so we were thinking of as a as a furniture-making father, have you thought about what projects you would want to build for your kids to send them on in the world when they're ready to leave the nest? Like, is there, you know, a series of, you know, whether it's essentials or a fun project or something?
2: Right, wow. Um, One, I've made my kids things throughout their lives so mm-hmm. like my son I made my daughter's crib uh, actually made it on like a tiny little balcony in an apartment in Columbia wow. South Carolina but um I made my son's first bed and mm-hmm. still have that bed I I now he he's in a loft bed that I made for him in his bedroom but um they each have like my daughter's jewelry cabinet is something that I made and <laughs> And I hope she takes that with her. And my son has a little wall, ca- you know, a little wall cabinet. He actually has two little wall cabinets that I made. Um, and actually a, a couple of, two Christmases ago, I made them each a Kumiko panel. And, you know, framed and painted and everything. And neither one of them was all that excited about it. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, listen, I know that you don't, you think this is lame. But just right. try hold on to it and you're going to appreciate it one day. And um, I think, though, if they were to move out and to move in somewhere, like an apartment or whatever, I think what I would want to make for them is something tremendously utilitarian. uh, Because, say, like a table, a dining table. Right. Because every day you sit at the dining table and you have at least one meal. Right. And so that dining table becomes a part of your daily life and starts in, in, you know, even in a subconscious way starts to give meaning to your life. And that way, maybe selfishly for me every day, they're sitting down at something that I made for them. And it's something that's becoming more and more a part of their life on a daily basis. You know, so as opposed to making them something really, uh, you know, like a like a high boy or something like that. You know, know, nobody wants a high boy anymore. So I would. Yeah. Or, you know, even like a blanket chest. You know, I'm not even sure how many young people want blanket chests anymore. Probably not many. So I would think I would make something utilitarian that could also grow with them so yeah i'm going to make you say a dining table but it's going to be a nice dining table that you're not going to want to throw out i hope and you know also something that was functional so it can go from being a four person to a six person in case you need that and um so i think things like that uh I, i would be interested in in making for them and also like even little small things like you know my daughter loves to eat udon noodles so um i'll make her you know a set of chopsticks that she can take with her and if uh those get worn out i'll make her some more and oh, yeah. Um, yeah i i think that i'm one of the things i'm really fascinated by is that that sure the utility of the things that we make is important but pieces of furniture and things in general have a purpose beyond their utility. And right. um, I'm interested in like how I can make things and with an eye towards their purpose and not just their utility. And um, so I think a lot about how a piece will interact with someone's daily life because that's where a piece of furniture gets its meaning from. You know, that's where it gets sentimental value from. And so that's the kind of, you know, if I could make things for them with that in mind, that's what I
0: would want to do. Sure. All right. So let's wrap up with our final segment where we're just give an update on the current projects that we're working on. Logan, I'll start with you.
1: Well, so this week we were, well, what are we? We're on Tuesday right now. So last week we wrapped up uh, our final show for our final episode for season 14 of yes. The Woodsmith Shop. Uh, so I grabbed this guy from the studio this morning. There's this is huge walnut platter, right, that I turned for our turning episode. And do you guys ever do something that you just know is not going to work? And you do it <laughs> anyways? <laughs> so I mean, this... turned a giant platter from a piece of burl? <laughs> yeah. yeah well it, yeah yeah kind of exactly like that a green piece of burl i might um, add yeah so so this was you know i turned this guy last week uh in turning something i've been doing a lot of lately i love it uh, it's kind of my new hobby um so when we did this turning episode i'm like you know what i'm gonna do so phil's doing a uh a project uh, you know a small kit type project chris was doing some tool handles i'm like you know i want to show another side of turning which is you know platters bowls vessels right uh so i decided i was going to do this this platter and instead of doing you know a little like plate size platter I'm, I'm gonna do something big right i'm gonna show turning something large because it's kind of a different beast than turning a little you know kit at 3000 rpm So, what do I have here? Okay, so I have a piece of walnut crotch that I, it was the tree was taken down in April. I put it on my sawmill in May. It's pretty wet still, but you know what? That's kind of another fun aspect of turning. So, I stand there all morning turning this platter, knowing full well, and I even say it on camera, you know, it's on record. This is probably gonna crack. It's gonna start moving on me. It's green, it is what it is. You have two options. You either let it do what it's gonna do and it becomes kind of a piece of art. you know, The wood's gonna do what it wants to do, right? Or you rough turn it and then you finish turn it. I decided let's turn it, finish size, let's make it. Let's, let's let the wood be wood. It's gonna move, it's gonna do what it wants to, especially with this being a fairly green piece uh, of of walnut. And I grabbed it this morning. Lo and behold, it's starting to move. And it was starting to move on me when it was on the lathe. You know, you get that hit and miss Was it's starting to to fold into the the Pringle chip, right? Uh, but, you know, as I grabbed it this morning, I can feel some of these cracks are opening up a little bit. Some of these knots are starting to, to curl up a little. So we'll see what it's going to do. You know what? It's going to be one of those things. I'm going to let it do whatever it will. And that's the end of it. So I,
2: I think the way you handle that is that you tell everybody that you're turning a walnut taco shell. Exactly. <laughs> Eventually yeah. that's what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and you always see a lot of these turners that will they'll turn something paper thin and they'll naturally let it curl and it becomes kind of a natural fluid form, which I think is yeah. kind of cool. And and who's to say that a platter has to be around, you know? traditionally bowls and platters were always turned green and they're going to do whatever they do. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but that aside, you know, I, everybody knows I've been working on this, this camper. We finally got out this weekend, but I did come down uh, last week into my shop here and realized my wife used all my beautiful redwood cutoffs. That I was going to make into little shingles she used them as paint spacers as she was painting these camper doors. So now, you know, all my beautiful redwood pieces have paint all over. My staves are all covered in white and green paint. So maybe I'll take a uh, note out of Matt's book and start painting my Next old project. growth redwood. Yeah. <laughs> I don't
2: know if I would do that,
1: but. <laughs> 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 because I mean, I, got, like, I have two of these. I have two of these coopered blanks here uh, to do Turn birdhouse or do some round birdhouses. I had enough staves to do another one and I was going to do that, but now I got all my little beveled edges are all covered in white paint. So it's yeah. like they were sitting there. I thought I was supposed to use them as spacers. It's like I got a sh- shelf behind you full of them, full of standoffs. <laughs> I was
2: teaching a class once and we started class by I was talking about which boxes we're going to make. And I was like, we're going to make this box. You've got cher- you all brought cherry to make it out of, and we're going to paint it. And this person says i'm not painting my beautiful cherry and i said who said your cherry's beautiful <laughs> and said,
1: <so, laughs> i was like it's not paint it <laughs>
0: uh, sorry uh, that's all right so i'm working on a old radio cabinet that belonged to my grandparents and uh transforming it well it had been transformed into a bookcase long ago and covered in contact paper because wood grain contact paper is better than regular wood, I guess. But so I'm working on that and veneering the doors and uh, finishing it up. And I'm hoping to get that wrapped up in the next couple of weeks, just because this one has been sitting around pretty much the whole of the COVID season. And it just needs to have some closure right now. So I say you've veneered those doors months ago yeah i did but part of it was i needed to before i could do the final size on the doors i needed to wrap up all the modifications that i was going to do on the case so that i knew how i'm going to cut these down to their final size so that it still all fits so so you listen to matt you start a project you finish it right well (laughs) i'm trying
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's really important yeah
2: <laughs> so, Matt, how about you? Uh, what am I working on right now? Um Well, let's see i'm just finishing i'm just doing the last bit of finish on a small tea cabinet that I made um as part of uh my podcast uh then. I, last week I had a student in my shop, and we made a he made a wall cabinet, and I made a wall cabinet that needs uh, pulls and drawer bottoms made. Um, so I got to get that done. I have another wall cabinet that I'm making for someone that I the whole thing is made out of hem uh, hemlock construction grade lumber that I bought at a box store, uh, oh. and uh, you know like cutting up cutting it up and stuff to get better grain out of it. So it was an exercise in taking something that looks ugly and trying to make something that looks pretty. It looks pretty. And I'm almost done with that. Uh, I got my credenza is almost done. I sound, I'm starting to sound like I'm not taking my own advice, but. <laughs> <laughs> like the credenza is not a pain job. So whenever I get a pain job, I've got to set it aside. Yeah. Um, right. So those are the big things I'm working on right now. And I've always, you know, I've got orders for guide blocks and, and panel kits to make this week um and uh and i I hope next week i can take the entire five days and finish up my shop i need to do some basically some trim work that will seal up some places where air can get in and out of um which i really want to do before the cold sets in to new england a couple of months
0: so right yeah all at once. Okay. <laughs> All at once. A bunch of yeah. plates spinning on sticks. Yes. So wanna thank Matt for joining us today again. His book is The Art of Kumiko. And thanks for joining yes. us. Matt, where can people find you on the internet?
2: Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, my website is MEK And every the best place if you want to keep up with what i'm doing in the shop uh is my instagram which is also mek woodworks and you know i don't really i'm on twitter with the same handle and there's a facebook page but you know it's instagram is really really where i'm active the most i said instagram yeah instagram yes so yeah instagram and then if you're curious about if you need kumiko guide blocks or you want to buy a panel kit because you're not quite ready to make all the parts for that you can find that stuff in the store on my website and you know copies of my books and things like that so yeah. okay but it's, and i have a youtube channel too all right and you have a podcast
0: as well right
2: i do have a podcast uh, it's called the matt and joe woodworking fun hour where i'm teaching it's the the guy that taught me to make furniture his name is joe and he never asked for anything in return and so then I met this guy, Joe, and he asked me if I would teach him woodworking. And I was like, well, I think this is finally my turn to repay my Joe. <laughs> so, <laughs> the podcast is mostly about me helping Joe learn how to w- work wood and to make furniture. Sweet. yeah, Just fine. All
0: right, well we'll put a link to Matt's book and his website and Instagram page on our show notes page, woodsmith.com slash podcasts. Otherwise, thanks again, Matt. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review and a rating so we can get in front of other woodworkers and share the love. Otherwise we'll see you again next week. One reminder that today's episode was brought to you by Garrett Wade offering unique tools of exceptional quality and solid value since 1975 thanks everybody bye